Hello and welcome to this episode of the Aimlo Podcast with me, Dom Lepresti. It is Friday, the 2nd of June, and it is sunny outside and a little bit windy because I can see the trees moving. It's warm. It's kind of nice. It's super pleasant. This is the weather I like. Hot doesn't do it for me on a normal day. This is the weather I like. Jesus. Okay, so this is the thing to say. This is the first one of these I've done solo. Uh, I've recorded things solo before, and I'm getting better at recording without someone else. But this is the first like podcast I've sat down and gone, okay, I'm going to just do this. And there's a number of reasons why I chose to do it today, and there's a number of reasons why I haven't done that in the past. One of those reasons is, is my background as a performer means I'm not good at doing the just be you to camera. And I can think of specific examples in the past where I've been asked to do that and how much just thinking about it takes me back to that emotional state where the terror and anxiety kind of bubbles up. What's helpful to remember is those other times that happened, I wasn't an adult. The times that really stick out, I was a kid. And actually, I think doing that to someone whose frontal lobe isn't fully developed maybe isn't a good thing. I think my frontal lobe is fully developed. I don't think this is a good test for that. But nevertheless, here we are. I think what it also is is as I sit here and I talk and I stare into the three lenses, not entirely knowing which one of those three lenses is recording it, I think the the thought that I'm struck by when I'm not performing or when I'm not given things to say or there's not an audience is I think I fall into the same trap that the Native American tribes did, where I feel like the lens is somehow stealing a bit of my soul. I'm like reminded of that scene in Blade Runner where Kay sits in front of the lens in a room that's not too dissimilar colored to the room I'm in, but it's not empty, to find his baseline. And he's repeating the words interlinked, which is actually a Meisner acting exercise to get you comfortable. To get you comfortable and to get you reading lines in a way where you're not remembering them for the first time. Or it doesn't... No, you're not remembering them for the first time? That sentence doesn't make any sense, so let's break that down. Where you are saying them as if you are saying a line as if you are saying it for the first time. Jeff Goldblum is very good at this. And anything he says feels like it's the first time he's saying it. The scene that comes to mind when I think of this is the scene in Jurassic Park where he's in the Jeep. He's talking about chaos theory with the the drop of water. And then they leave him and he's in the car talking to himself. And that feels like it's just stream of consciousness. He's very good at this. I'm not very good at that. And there, there is a thing whenever he talks, and he is just Jeff Goldblum, 
where it feels off because he's not doing that. Or I think that. I'd have to revisit it. I'm not sure. But that's what I feel like. I get lost in that abyss of feeling like the camera is stealing my soul. And this feels like a good way to, to get over that. Or to practice in a safe environment that. So, I don't entirely know what I'm qualified to talk about. Uh, but I've got better at letting the stream of consciousness go with journaling. And I don't think this should be a journal. Uh, the podcasts have never been a journal, even when they've been with other people. They've, they've not necessarily been a record of exactly what's happening now. Like, you know, as much as I've made videos that are labeled as vlogs, it's not entirely true. It's not a diary. I don't share, you know, deep, dark things, even though I have in the past. That's the other thing that makes me very conscious about doing this is sometimes, or with the things I've done in the past where it's been sharing is caring, <laughs> or where I've been more emotionally vulnerable in a piece of content. Uh, again, at the risk of sounding like that machine that's resetting my baseline. Talking about things in cold, calculated manner. I don't want this piece of content to turn into that. But I did go to an event recently where I said to a friend while we were planning it, I said, you can't, you don't want to force an energy or vibe, although the word vibe I don't like in this context, but you don't want to force a vibe on a situation. You want to get into that flow state because I do think there is the thing of you're setting yourself up for disappointment. So if I was overly attached to what this needs to be and what I'm going to say, I'm always going to be disappointed because it's never going to match up to the thing in my head. Whereas if I can focus on letting that stream of consciousness go, trying to not be worried about gaps and pauses, then I might not be disappointed. I could still be disappointed, but I'll be limiting the odds of that by not letting all those things fall into the mix. What I've been thinking about a lot recently and what I did want to touch on and talk about in a vague attempt to have this sound like a chat that we're having where you're not doing any of the talking and it's just me doing it is there's been a lot that I've noticed about film criticism which shouldn't be a surprise. Oh, he's going to talk about film. No, he's going to talk about the criticism or reviewing of films. This shouldn't come as like a great shock if you've in any way listened to anything I've done before or watched anything I've done before. But it has taken on a new thought recently. So what I'd like to do is meditate on that. Meditate on that, that sounds. I'm not going to sit here in silence, although I think that would be interesting. <laughs> oh None of this is being taken away it's going to be as is and that might be a note from me rather than something you need to listen to the thought i want to talk through is about the nature of film 
criticism and what I think the fundamental flaw is, even though I don't want the system to change as we have it. Something that struck me, particularly with reviews where you have to um, see the thing immediately and then immediately comment on it. So you are a, you know, film criticism is your job. You get a press screener to something. You go and see it and then you have to immediately comment it. Now, I think there's incredible skill to that and there is an art to that and there is a practice to that and there's a reason why some people can do it as a profession and some people can't even though we're all kind of engaged in it anyway you know we all attempt to review something to a friend we have stuff we recommend to people we give our two cents worth on social media you know you can look at review sites where they compare journalistic reviews they compare audience reviews we're all engaged in that system whether we like it or not and i suspect people who say that they're not engaged in that system are the people that really go after it and really push their stuff to their friends and are incredibly opinionated online without realizing they're they're a part of it particularly if they deny it and i was immediately struck by a number of things recently in which my review or criticism of something or my reflection on something as having value, should we say. Let's set that as the baseline. If you're, does this have value? Yes, it has value. You should go and see it. You should listen to it. You should watch it. You should you know, experience it. No, this doesn't have value. Avoid it. My initial reviewing of something or my initial reaction to something is least reliable in the first few moments after having experienced it, whether it's good or bad. And I think potentially it gets worse <laughs> if it is very good or if it is incredibly bad. And so the fundamental flaw I see is you come away from something first off and you get the reaction to it. The thing that springs to mind is when people watch trailers for the first time and they like blind react to something, which I enjoy that content. If you do it, uh, I'm sure I've been guilty of it. I'm sure I've attempted it, even if it's not seen the light of day. But actually, so much happens in what I would label for this, like the digestion of something. And there's a few examples that kind of spring to mind immediately. Uh, a lot of them are to do with music, which I, which is different to film. <laughs> uh, that sentence is wonderful for whether I should be taken seriously. Music is different to film which we all know, but I think you can feel what I'm saying, even though those words don't do that sentence justice. Um, and I think it's more common for us to feel this way with music, where we come back to it and either we have changed or we've grown or we've developed or we're, we're in a different space emotionally and we're receptive to what 
music's telling us. The example I use is two artists this has happened with in recent memory. This isn't like in the past few years I'm talking about. One of them is with Bob Dylan. And I think for years I didn't... My grandfather uh, talked about uh, the paintings of Salvador Darley, who I'm assuming you know about, but in broad is to say the surrealist painter. And I'd been to see an exhibition of his work and it was a full kind of, or as comprehensive a exhibition as it could be, starting with early work and, and working through it chronologically. I really loved that. I was quite young. It was, I was still impressionable. I think I was a teenager. And looking at somebody's body of work beginning to end and seeing it developed, somebody with such a distinct style was really valuable. I was talking to him about it. And bless it, you know, can you imagine listening to a teenager talk about surrealist art in a way where they feel like, oh, wow, this is new and this is great and I'm into it. You know, he must have had the patience of a saint to listen to me. Just be so passionate about it because it's new and I'm, I'm was experiencing it for the first time. And I kind of known about it, but I was seeing it for the first time. And being in the room with some of those paintings makes a difference. And he said to me, because eventually, I'm sure after going on and on and on for minutes, <laughs> which may be what you feel like right now, and I equally applaud your patience as I did his, he said, there's some work that I look at and I don't like and it doesn't do anything for me. And there's some work I look at and I... His words were, oh God, I wish I could do that. I wish I had that talent within me to paint this thing or to play that piece of music. And then he said, there's a third category of work I like, but they can keep it. Uh, and Salvador Dali, for him, fit into that category. He liked it, but he, he didn't have the desire to do it. He didn't, it didn't resonate with him in a way that he wished he created. Love that. He should be sat here talking to you now because he's so much more gifted than I am at talking through these things. Probably in part because he's had more practice. And Bob Dylan for me was that third category where it's okay. I knew it wasn't objectively bad, but I didn't, you know, it didn't inspire. Um, the phrase that comes to mind is it didn't tickle me or grab me in the way that other music had in the past and the song in particular that I would have even said was like overrated is blowing in the wind and those first few lyrics you know how many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man and I have heard those lyrics sung by countless people different interpretations his interpretation of what hit not I suppose it's not an interpretation if he wrote it but his version of it and it did nothing for me. It just washed over me. I experienced it as a very pleasant, very competently written song. <laughs> uh, Bob Dylan, the competent songwriter. But then one day I'm listening to it. And I don't even remember what sparked going back and listening to Bob Dylan. But I listened to like just a what I'm sure any Bob Dylan purist would be horrified 
was the album that I went to that was like a compilation. And I heard that, you know, how many roads must a man walk down? How many times must the cannonballs fire before they're forever banded? All of a sudden, it hits me. And I feel like I get it on a different level I did before. And I can't quite put into words what's changed. I can't tell you I went through this event and all of a sudden this music spoke to me. But I got it and I can listen to it now and I can listen to it like I'm appreciating a piece of art. And, uh, you know, the same with uh, All Alone the Watchtower. You know, for ages I loved the Hendrix version of that song that we all know that was probably the first version that comes to mind when you hear that lyric. And specifically his opening riff to it, which isn't Dylan-esque. But then listening to Bob Dylan's version of it, it's the same lyrics. And yes, it has a massive helping of his style, but all of a sudden it's like, yes, it resonates. And I think that the simplest way to chalk this up is like, oh, well, I've just matured and I've got older and he's speaking to a mature audience. Maybe not even as mature as I am yet. But I'm starting to, to get there. And I don't think in music that's that unremarkable. But equally, the other band it happened with recently was Nirvana. But with Nirvana, there was a different path. So Nirvana, I was too young to be switched onto them when they were first out or when they really broke into the zeitgeist. However, being a preteen and a teen, that music really, really spoke to me uh, on, a, on a very superficial surface level. Potentially, I w you could class me as the kind of fan, even though I would never have said I was a fan, but I definitely would have been in the category of people that Kurt Cobain wrote in Bloom about. Of, you know, enjoying the music and enjoying the artistry of it on a very surface level. And then for a while it kind of faded away. I kind of let it go. And I didn't really enjoy it for a decade at least. It was linked to everything kind of juvenile and childish and teenage rage. Or I don't even know if outrage is the white word, but that sense of righteous indignation you have as a teen. And then it kind of came back again. And all of a sudden it's the same songs, it's the same music. So it's not like with Dylan where... I never had it, and then one day I did. But it came back, and it has a sort of strange resonance to it. Um, and specifically in Bloom, which something I was struck by not long ago is the music video for that made in the 90s is them dressed up as the Beatles on a kind of, you know, all-American talk show, much like the Beatles did where... You know, they would come out on like a Tonight Show, 
perform, the crowd would go wild. And something I was struck by was their music is now as far away from us today as they were to the Beatles. Pardon me. Yeah, it's come back again, and yeah, I'm appreciating it as artistry. And I think with film criticism, which seems to go through this more than any other art form, which seems to go through this, you have to have an immediate reaction to it. Often it's as you walk, if you're lucky enough to be seeing something in a cinema, it's as you walk down the steps. It's as you walk out of the corridor to go into the foyer of a cinema that you're expected to have this your review, if you like, ready to go. Maybe not, you know, calling it review might be too harsh, but you're expected to have your reaction to it. And the more I've been ruminating on it, ruminating is a better word than meditation for this, the more I've seen the flaw of that, the more I've seen, like, I want to start treating film, which I have an intense love for, um, you know, which uh, kind of a fundamental relationship with. It's a big part of who I am. I want to start treating it like the relationship I have with music, where it can drift away and it can come back and it can it can mean different things at different times to me. And I'm often struck by the thought that, you know, works that I would consider... Uh, masterpieces are ones that when they first end you don't necessarily know you've watched a masterpiece you know they leave you with they, they leave you with all the pieces and it's not immediately obvious what you want to do about them and I think this is this is really obvious with films that have a that don't end in on the traditional The end of the, the hero's journey where the hero is returned and the hero has changed and the hero has grown. So the two that spring to mind are something like, you know, Goodfellas doesn't doesn't end on the, you know, due to the subject matter of it being a true story about mobsters, doesn't end on a feel-good note necessarily, even though you're full of adrenaline after that last 20 minutes. Uh, Fight Club is another one that comes to mind where, I mean, I don't know if I could even unpick that right now but it's not a it, it's a hopeful ending but it's not necessarily happy you know as they stand there and the the buildings of the credit card companies blow up you know the the goal of our hero of that story is to stop the thing from happening that that happens and we watch it happen and there's not even a, like a coda to it we watch it happen and then the pixies come in and that's it but also with Okay, well, I've just lost my notes, so we'll see where this goes from here. But also with films that are really popcorn films. So, you know, uh, Forrest Gump comes to mind, and even something like Titanic. Not necessarily films you'd hold up as, like, you know, dripping in artistic virtue yet really solid really you're like yeah no that is you know even though i came away from it feeling like it was just a roller coaster ride of ups and downs and fun and great you know i can i can come away from it now 
it's still with time that you appreciate it a little bit more and that you're like, no, there are plenty of films like that that don't stick with you in the same way. Um, you know, I think The Poseidon Adventure is a fantastic film. Yet I don't know if it is at the same level as Titanic. I think Titanic is somehow more than that, even though it's really hard to compare these things. You know, Dylan or Nirvana, you know, how would you go about comparing those? But it's a useful one because it's about a disaster on a ship. And I want to have that relationship with more things. I want to be, or at least acknowledge that in my first viewing of something. Now, I have tried to talk to people about this before. And something I'm struck by is I will go back and return to stuff many times over, whether I like it or not. Sometimes on a whim, you know, um, and streaming services make this so much easier than when I would do it with physical media. Although I think with physical media, it was easier. You had what you had. And if you wanted to watch something, you know, you only had what was available on the shelf. And so you would return to stuff a little bit more. Whereas with streaming services, I don't know, maybe you can pick through. Maybe I'm just still in the habit of having that mentality. So I treat streaming services like the shelf and in order to avoid that trap we all get into where we just scroll for ages looking for something and we spend more time scrolling than if we committed to the long thing that we were like, that's too long, I can't watch that now anyway. But I, I want to have that. And, and an example I would use, besides the ones I've already mentioned, but where this definitely happened a lot was we need to talk about Kevin. And the first time I watched We Need to Talk About Kevin, I watched it alone. And I was aware that I kind of watched it in the manner of eating vegetables or taking medicine of like, I don't know if this is going to be for me and I don't know if I'm going to enjoy this. This isn't... I'm not watching it necessarily for pleasure, even though I get a lot of pleasure out of watching films. But actually, it you know, it's... It's about dark subject matter and it's had good reviews. So it's worth, you know, uh, being aware of as a piece of work that's out there. Uh, and again, even saying, oh, I thought it was great, given the dark subject matter of that story, uh, doesn't seem appropriate. What does seem appropriate is to acknowledge... that I think it's underappreciated as a piece of work. And there's a million and one reasons why that could be that I'm not, I'm not interested in unpacking, but I'm sure people could. And I'm sure I could be teased into doing it with little effort, but I don't know if I'd have as much great insight there. What was profoundly interesting with that film was watching it the first time. I think I had the going back to the Nirvana, I had the surface level response to it. And I and I responded to it as I think I should have responded to it the first time looking back at it now. So I felt incredibly sorry for the characters that if I was to give you a vague rundown of the plot, you would expect me to feel sorry for. And I felt frightened by the characters I was supposed to feel frightened by. And I felt 
everything a good audience member, if there is such a thing, should feel when watching We Need to Talk About Kevin. Uh, and I'm aware there's a book that I haven't read and probably should. Uh, but it would be hard. I, it wouldn't be a fair reaction to it now. Be from you know the film version having such an impact, and I then showed it to someone else, which is always tricky when you show someone else something that you like, or that you enjoy, or that you want to. You know, I, I, I sit there with my arms folded, and I'm, you know, you end up watching them more than you watch whatever it is you've got on, and every every little thing then takes on a whole weight. So if something embarrassing happens in it, you're like, oh no, it's just ruined it for them. Uh, if they laugh at something, if they, you know. Um, and the what I was struck by was that feeling very quickly fell away and I found myself feeling incredibly different to who I would refer to as the two lead characters. You know, the relationship between a mother and a son. And on that second viewing, through what felt like fresh eyes, even though I'd seen it once before, that relationship had completely flipped for me. Even though fundamentally I still felt like I did before. You know, the character in that film who I, as an audience member, am supposed to be repulsed by, I still was. But it took on so much more of a nuanced perspective. Maybe the the best way to put it is the mother finger in that film, who I felt incredibly sorry for, and who seemed completely to be the victim all the way through. Suddenly, I was seeing things where, no, they were more responsible for the thing that happened. Not ultimately responsible, because they did not commit the act that is the you know, linchpin of the story. But if I were that person in that place, suddenly I could see how you could wrestle more with your responsibility in that position. And there were moments where I felt incredibly sorry Maybe, no, that's not the right word. I didn't feel sorry for the character that goes on to commit a heinous act. But there were these moments that broke my heart because I felt the pain that that character was feeling that led them to commit the things that they did, that I didn't the first time. And I would never have had that reaction, and I would have never... experienced it had I not gone back to it um, so maybe in review this is just a kind of PSA for watch films a second time whether you like them whether you didn't like them whether you know I'm a big believer in doing that and would recommend doing that because you can have these experiences with it you know, another good example, totally not to do with film, but to jump back to the art, 
is I think we've all had the experiences of looking through those coffee table books that are about modern art. And most of them are just images that we're not impressed by. Where, you know, it just looks like, you know, maybe an entire canvas just with one color painted across it. Or, you know, uh, the artist's name escapes me, but who would do those blocks of color. And I, I had the experience where I looked at that and I thought, does nothing for me. But then seeing in person, seeing the scale of some of those things, being in a room with one of those pieces of art. And we're in room with, we're in room. <laughs> we're in rooms with those pieces of art more often because that's the generic art that you tend to get in hotel rooms and restaurants and those kind of, you know, the, um, a palatable version of those things that, that fits in a space that works for it. But being in a gallery space and seeing the, the scale of some of that work and being able to, to stand really far away from it and, and view it as a whole as that coffee table book and then get super close to it and view the brushstrokes that are on it is a different experience. It is a different experience. And, and to not acknowledge that in your ability to review something, to review a piece of art, to review a piece of work, to review a piece of content, is the thing I'm ruminating on and I'm struggling with. And what does that look like if I want to do either of those things? What does that look like for how I take reviews and criticisms of the thing I did? <laughs> is this just a pathetic way for my ego to deal with bad responses to stuff? Maybe. I don't think so, though. I don't think so. But it could be. I could be persuaded that that's what's happening. And if you've come this far, thank you. Right now, I feel positive about the experience, so I think I'm going to do this again. And that's it. Oh, uh, do I do this now? Do I do this now? Yes, if you do have questions, because uh, I'd love to respond to things like on the fly or measured, uh, hit me up through the usual channels. We've done that before with group stuff, but I, I think it'd be really interesting to do this like this now. So I'm going to do that. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to whatever comes out next. Thank you.